Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? This episode, we're catching up with my friend and fellow gardener, Lyndon Penner, and he's here to talk about his most recent book, which is a bit of a departure from what we're used to reading by him, but nonetheless, an incredible read. The book is called The Way of the Gardener, Lost in the Weeds Along the Camino de Santiago, and it's about his journey along the Camino through the lens of someone who is obsessed with plants. I can't tell you how relaxing and refreshing this book was to read, especially in the context of travel-slash-adventure novels. But the best person to talk about it is Lyndon himself, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Lyndon Penner. I hope you enjoy. That's, that's really honestly the truth. I, <laughs> so I was working on something quite different and huh. I got home and I got my manuscript in and they didn't love it. But what they did love was there was a couple of little places where I had spoken about the Camino and I had mentioned the Camino and they really liked that. And so we kind of went back and forth a little bit. And I said, you know, I kept a journal when I was on the Camino. I'm going to just type it up and I'm going to send it to you and you let me know what you liked or what you didn't like or whatever. And we'll like, we'll go from there. And so I sent it to them and they said, this is the book. This wow. is the manuscript. And I was like, huh. what? <laughs> so huh? I, I didn't, a friend of mine said, your book would have been way funnier if you would have made up stuff. <laughs> and, and I said, okay. Yeah, but I didn't, I didn't know I was writing this. I thought I was writing this just for me. So I didn't exaggerate anything because wow. I, this is just, this is just actually what happened. So if somebody says, I really didn't like your book, I'm okay with that because I'm like, well, this is how it went. This is how it occurred. So if you, you know, you can't really argue with something that is an account of what actually happened. Yeah. yeah. So if you don't like it, um, then you good thing you weren't on the trip. <laughs> yeah. If, you know, if you don't like the characters in my book, um, well, too bad. They're real people. So. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but it was, it was t- truly, it was an accidental book. I did not, That's I did awesome. not have any, any intention of that. I had a fabulous, fabulous editor named Alex who was, so kind and so empathetic and made me write better and challenged me and said, you know, he would say, well, you know, you were, you were really angry in this passage. And I said, no, I'm not. Okay. Well, you're coming across that. Mm. Oh, okay. So then he would say, okay, well, you're writing really well about what you're seeing, but I need you to describe what you're feeling. Wow. I do not write about my feelings. That's not a thing I do. Uh-uh. I don't have feelings. I try very hard not to feel things. So <laughs> I am like, okay, so I, writing about my feelings and so or he would say you're writing about why why this makes you feel this way but i need you to i need you to visualize it i need i need Hmm. make me see what you're seeing so it was really interesting as a writer because when i'm writing about eucalyptus or fig trees or olives or i know what they look like i don't put long detailed descriptions in my journals because i know what they look like i'm with you i'm with you and i don't like per i mean within context reading a descriptive thing. I'm like, I have eyes. I can see this plant. I know. what yes. I thought. Yeah. Yep. It's tough. It's tough. And so, but for an audience who won't necessarily know what a fig looks like or what a chestnut is like, 
I have, I, I am tasked with having to convey to the reader. This is why it impressed me. Yeah. And so, um, and that is, as you say, hard, that mm-hmm. is a difficult thing to try and do because then I would go back and, you know, Alex would say, well, I love what you've written here, but I need you to describe it to me. Well, I don't know. It's a tree. It's, um, it's got branches and leaves. I can give you, I can give you a really detailed botanical description, which won't mean anything to the public, or I can give you a sort of, you know, a, an actual description that probably won't be interesting to people who don't care about trees. <laughs> um, so how do I, how do I do this? Um, so I hope that I found a happy medium with it. I hope that I found a way to, to get people to, I hope people enjoy it. And with the pandemic, people have said to me, it was nice to be able to travel without leaving the house, which was a really nice compliment because we are not doing another pandemic. Yeah, I am, please no. I am, please I am not no. a fan of pandemics. I don't want to ever do another one in my entire life when this is done. We're not doing this again. <laughs> so the fact that we haven't been able to travel as freely, we haven't been able to just, yeah get on a plane and sit next to somebody and, you know, like we're all, we've all used so much hand sanitizer in the last year. I'm amazed that any of us leave fingerprints anymore. <laughs> so like, you know, they're, I don't, I don't know how, how they're going to solve crimes anymore. There's no germs left. We have, you know, there's no bacteria. There's no viruses. There's no fungus. We've killed everything. Yeah. I'm sure so, there's been cheaters though. There will I'm, always be dirty. I'm sure. But you know, I thought, well, if it's if it's enough that people can sit in their chair in their living room with their cup of coffee or their glass of wine and feel like they're going somewhere across Spain with a gardener, lovely. That's yes. great. That's yes. that's all you can you can really do. I have had a couple of people say to me, so like, are you gonna do it again? Are you gonna write like <laughs> are you gonna do it in the spring and then write like the spring version of it? And I went, No. I, I having completed the book. It was very obvious that was not going to be the thing. <laughs> but I respect that so much about it. And so let's 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 back up. So now that I've hit the okay. record button, let's just briefly because people can go back and listen to who you are and get some background on, but just sure. introduce yourself. Lyndon Penner, welcome to the podcast. I've Thank missed you. talking with you. You're one of the most requested returns to the podcast and now That's that you've so got a new kind. book to talk about, let's talk about it. But first, let's introduce yourself. Who is Lyndon Penner? I am a Canadian gardener, environmentalist, author, writer, lecturer, um, nature nut, nerd, and that's that's usually how I self-identify. <laughs> as, as a gardener is usually what I just tell people, um, but I'm somebody who cares a great deal about the planet and about trees and flowers and native plants and pollinators, and so that's kind of, that's that's who I am. That's my life's work. And I am now working as the head gardener in Riding Mountain National Park in Manitoba, Canada. Excellent. And you forgot to add genuinely good human being into that. Oh, mix. you're fine. <laughs> I, I love all our correspondence because you are a genuinely good person with an amazing head on your shoulders and an appreciation and expression for plants that uh, just, you know, it's, it's intoxicating. And I think the listeners really appreciate every little bit you have to say. So I encourage everyone to go back and listen to our previous episodes, but That's as nice they get a little bit of a hint of what we were just kind of talking about, um, you know, the, the writing part of this has become a big part of what you do. And, and in terms of like interacting with pl- the plants is one thing, but you also share that with people. And, and it's really appreciative to have a voice like yours 
that gives us a chance to see the world through your eyes, which is, it's, it's always great to have that because, you know, the way I see the world is just the way I see the world, not the right. way others get to see it. Yeah. It's, uh, I think, I think the way that you see the world based on your book though is, <laughs> Thanks. is quite fascinating. So don't, uh, I enjoy it. I enjoy my ride, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a party of one. I'm the only one that gets to enjoy it. <laughs> Through this, lens. I don't think I don't think you could have a successful podcast if you were a party of one. <laughs> it, yeah, I, guess. I think I think I think that you you have found your people, and that's uh, that's an exciting thing. Well, I mean, it's only as good as the people I have on. So, yeah, welcome back. It's Thank you. Great to have you. I'm so excited you. that you are in a position where you're really able to exercise and and sort of express your love in a way that's going to reach so many people. But you know, outside you. of the garden, you're also writing about it. And, and you have written a book that is vastly different than what you have done before in the author yes. world. Yes. I didn't set out to write a memoir. It wasn't part of my plan. It's just sort of what happened. Uh, when I travel, I keep journals. And hmm. I'm there's some people who keep journals regardless. I keep garden journals, like for work and for things like, like that. When I gardened for people for many years, I was self-employed. I kept tabs on first frost, last frost, what went in, what variety, all of that. So writing is not not new to me. But when I travel, I like to keep a journal. And it's interesting when I read things that I wrote about traveling in my 20s, traveling in my 30s. So I kept a journal when I when I did this trip across Spain. And I wrote about what interests me, which is not usually architecture, food, religion, history, those are all things that I find interesting, but it's not my first instinct to write about them. I want to write about what was growing next to the church rather than what the church was called. <laughs> so that that was something that I just I just write about plants because that's how I see the world. That's how I interpret the world. And so I was asked to do this this pilgrimage across Spain with a friend of mine, and I kept a journal, which was something I had intended to do for me and not for the public. And so I wrote about plants as I, as I walked across Spain and my journal eventually became the manuscript, which became the book. So it's quite personal, which is not like my previous books, you know, like a delphinium requires the same growing conditions, regardless of, of where in the world it's being grown and who's planting it. And, and plants don't care a lot about people's opinions. So that's great. But I kept this journal and my publisher decided that it was publication worthy, <laughs> which I am complimented and flattered by. And so now it's out in the world and people have a chance to, uh, it's been, it's been called by friends of mine, you know, obviously it's your most personal book mm. because plant information is one thing people require it. People need to know how to grow things. I can provide that. But it's a little bit self-indulgent in a sense to write a memoir because you write it with the assumption that somebody's actually going to care what you have to say, or somebody's going to actually be interested in what you happen to see along that journey. So, um, so there's a lot of me in this book, I think. It's interesting what I have heard from people who don't know me. Hmm. Apparently, I come across as quite grumpy in some oh, parts. Interesting. So that's been one of the things that I have heard through friends and, and relations is that um, <laughs> apparently I am cantankerous at times or I'm interpreted as being that way, which is probably to be fair, true. Uh, <laughs> nobody has ever accused me of being Susie Sunshine. So there's, there's, there's that. And that's fine. We're not, we're not all made the same. So I got to walk across Spain and yeah. make friends with trees. 
Yeah. And so this culminated in a book called The Way of the Gardener, Lost in the Weeds Along the Camino de Santiago. I'm probably yes. butchering that. But no, you didn't. It's one of those things where I don't think if it wasn't you writing this book, I don't think I would have picked it up because this is, I had never heard of the Camino de Santiago before. It doesn't sound like something I personally would partake in just because I'm a lot like you. I'm going to see plants. I'm going to see nature. I, my friend Mark, before he passed, used to joke and called me Philistine. It's just, it's, it's a joking, <laughs> loving way of saying like you, I'm a little focused. Um, yes. But what you've accomplished here is uh, really taking your voice, taking your love and appreciation for plants and putting it into a context that's outside of what you're comfortable with, but something we can all to some degree empathize with, which is travel, which is experiencing new things, the discomfort that comes with it. Um, but also through the lens of something we, you know, a hobby is something that you appreciate. And that to me is where the, the, your voice rang true. I, I was, Thank you. You know, I was telling my partner when we were, you know, reading. I was like, I'm, I'm reading this in Lyndon's voice, which I think is really heightening the experience of the whole book for me. So I, I'm lucky I have talked to you prior to reading this. I heard that from quite a few people was that they they could hear me reading it, which made me wonder what people who don't know me are hearing when they <laughs> when they read it. Too. <laughs> I, I'm curious about that. Yeah, the I had never heard of the Camino Santiago either, which I'm a little bit embarrassed about because. I consider myself a well-read and well-educated person. And when my friend Carol mentioned, you know, the Camino to me, I had never heard of it. I had no idea. And it is a religious pilgrimage traditionally. And I grew up in a Christian house. So I thought surely somewhere along the way, I would have heard about this. And I never did. I never, I never encountered it. But for anyone who doesn't know, the, uh, the concept is that St. James, the disciple of Christ, he traveled to what is now Spain and that he is responsible for bringing the gospel to that part of the world. And that when he passed away, he was buried there and the church in Santiago de Compostela was built to house his bones and to honor him. And so there was three very famous pilgrimages in the sort of uh, early Christian world. One of them was to Jerusalem, one of them was to Rome and one of them was to Santiago. Wow. But Jerusalem and Rome, there were more treacherous and there was more risk of being waylaid by pirates or by, by you know, misfortune. Those, those treks are much rougher, but getting to Santiago was relatively easy. And so people would journey from all across Europe to pray at the, at the site of the saint's bones. And so whether or not he is actually buried there is not for me to say. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> But that's that's what tradition holds, and so the Camino, the Camino Santiago, translates as the Way of Saint James. And so my friend Carol said, "Do you want to do this with me?" And I said, "Yeah, sure, okay, sounds like fun. Why not? Yeah. Who does that? Because <laughs> the the Camino is is traditionally done by walking, and and it's eight hundred kilometers." which is, I, I'm not good at math. I can't remember how many miles that is, but it's uh, a lot. It, it's, it's a, a it's lot. Not it's not a day trip or a it's week not trip. A, <laughs> it, it's uh, it's, you walk all day, every day for six weeks to get there. You start in the South of France and you go up over the Pyrenees, which are the fourth highest mountain range in the world. And so you go up on the French side and you come down on the Spanish side and you walk all the way across northern spain from east to west <laughs> and you sleep in a different bed every night and you uh 
you meet different people and you, it's very simple. It's very uncomplicated. Every day is the same. Every day is also totally different. (laughs) And so there's a sort of rhythm to the Camino. There's a sort of quiet elegance to it that after you get into it, you get up, you put on your backpack in the morning, out you go and you walk. And lots of people do the Camino because they've recently lost somebody. They've had a divorce. They, their dream job didn't work out. They're, very often people are searching for something and they will go and walk the Camino. There are now more non-religious people than religious people walking. Hmm. Thousands of people for 2,000 years have been walking the Camino. So Carol said, you know, she had done it before, but she hadn't finished it. She didn't want to do it alone. And she said, do you want to come with? And I said, yeah, I'll totally do that. And I don't know who says yes to that on a whim. Like who, I don't know what sane person is like, yeah, well, I'll walk. I'll do a six week walk with you. No problem. To be fair, the picture you painted on that decision making evening was one, at least a little fueled by some wine. There was some wine. There was a little (laughs) bit of wine involved, but I, I think I was stone cold sober when I said yes. Oh man. So, so which, yeah, I have no excuse whatsoever. So I, um, I was just like, okay, yeah, I'll do this. And we did. And I'm really proud of myself that I did it. I'm glad that I did it. I don't have a desire to do it again. Um, that's not to say I wouldn't ever do it again if the right circumstances came up. Like my nephews will be adults someday. And if sure. one of them said to me, would you, would you do this with me? I might do it. Um, it would, it would totally depend on the circumstances. It's not a reasonable distance to walk, No, but I had never been to Spain or France and I thought, yeah, I can do this. I bet it would be beautiful. I would love to see vineyards and olive groves and some of the things from Spain, like there's people who think about the Camino for the rest of their life after doing it. I, I can't say I do that, <laughs> but, but with that being said, I feel somewhat haunted by the olive trees. Oh, I, I, there is something about olive trees that is deeply holy and sacred that I have trouble huh. articulating. And when I think about the Camino, I think about olive trees and I think about like olives are native to Spain. So when you see them, they're being cultivated, but that is actually their homeland. Like they evolved around the Mediterranean and are native to many nations that surround the Mediterranean Sea. Spain is one of them. And so you, you walk under these olive trees that are many, many decades older than I am. And that have, that have provided shade for many, many people who have walked before you and who will walk after you. And they rustle quietly to themselves and you know, they're having conversations about things. And there's just, when I think about doing the Camino, I think about these glittering, beautiful, serene valleys filled with olive trees that were beautiful from afar and were beautiful up close and were mysterious and sophisticated and elegant there is something about an olive tree that I can completely understand why they have been the olive branch has been the symbol of peace (laughs) for thousands of years. I get it. I totally get it. That's my favorite thing about the Camino. And I tried to write about that. I don't think I, I don't think I really conveyed how they made me feel, but I tried. (laughs) Yeah. Unless you experience it and you're lucky enough to live in a climate where you can grow them, it's, it's a totally different story, I'm sure. But for people from the great white North, like you and I, uh, it is a 
otherworldly experience to finally see these things. I mean, I grew up eating olives, but it was it literally took me going to visit family in Portugal to actually see them in situ growing in the climates where they evolved, like you said. And it does, I mean, it's been decades since I've been there and it's one of the few species that in the cork oak that (laughs) really leave a mark on you. And it's, you get a sense of, Oh, this is like where plants and culture meet. And, and for someone like me, that's so stuck in the botanical side of things all the time, not saying that in a negative sense, it's a nice, helpful reminder of just how ancient the relationship really is between our species and plants. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it it really comes through. And I'm, I'm happy that we're kind of kicking it off with olives because it is so, again, if you're just kind of like not in the climate where you see these trees grow, they're just disembodied things that end up on the top of pizza or in a Absolutely. salad or stuff with a, Absolutely. <laughs> a pimento or garlic. Most people have no idea where an olive comes from or the fact that, you know, nobody thinks about the fact we don't eat them raw. No, we don't, we don't pick olives off the tree and eat them that they have to be preserved in some way. And somebody had to learn how to do that. Somebody somewhere along the way figured out, you know, this tree produces a lot of fruit, (laughs) terrible fruit, but can't we make it delicious in some way? Maybe if we salted it, like (laughs) how did, how was that discovered? How did we arrive there? So yeah. just, I think that's it. it's lucky. And I mean, think of how many uses we have for that one thing, not that to mention the, the midst of the mix of things that are possible uh, in any given. And, and what's cool too, is kind of going back to this idea of like, would I, I probably, if someone invited me, I'd be like, sure, why not? But it's one of those things I would never have elected or chosen to do just because you know, I don't think of cultural sort of excursions like this as necessarily going hand in hand with plants. But what you have managed to do is take someone like me and introduce them to a cultural topic, but through the lens of something they can appreciate. So it was like a nice, easy sort of segue or introduction to this idea. And 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 the fact that you write, I wouldn't say you're cantankerous. I think if anything, it comes off as sort of like comedically honest. Uh, There's more than one time I laughed about this book, but the fact that you did this through the lens of a gardener, through your love of plants, connects you to the landscape so much more than I think, for me at least, if this was just an adventure novel. And the other part of it too is just, you know, this idea that you can take someone that loves plants, stick them anywhere. Yes. And guess what? They're going to find something interesting. We can make make friends with any tree that shows up. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, I, th- I think that is important. And I think that that's also, I don't speak Spanish. And there's lots of Spanish people who don't speak English. And there's lots of French people who don't, you know, there's people who don't speak French. And they're, regardless of what language you speak, regardless of what part of the world that you're in, I feel like gardening is an international language. <laughs> Truly. I have been in China where I didn't speak a word of Mandarin. And, you know, showing appreciation for a plant and I had gardeners offering me cuttings they couldn't speak a word of English and we were very clearly communicating a sense of, Oh, I love, I love what you've done here. And, oh, let me get you. A, let me get you a slip from that. Uh, I have, I have been with, uh, with people in many parts of the world where I don't, I don't speak what you speak, but Hey, I know that flower. And there's, there's ways that I think you could make that work. Like I think we could drop you or I into any part of the world <laughs> and we would find our people. Totally. Yeah. Because plants are something that connects people to each other and also to the landscape and plants tell stories, which is 
something that you have done a really great job with on your podcast is the fact that every plant has a story to tell. If you walk into a grocery store and you look at apples and oranges and bananas, those are all totally unrelated plants that came from totally different parts of the world that evolved for totally different reasons. They tell us things about the people who, who selected them, who bred them, who made a crop out of them, who sent them to new parts of the world, what gardener from England or Holland or France discovered it and said, maybe we could eat these. Maybe we could, maybe these would be pretty. Maybe we could do, you know, there's, um, there's lots of, Plants like daylilies are something that the Chinese cultivated them first, but they were vegetable. They ate the buds and they ate the roots and they, they were grown in vegetable gardens. And eventually somebody said, these are really beautiful. We should just grow them because they're beautiful. And they began to travel and different people have done different things with them. If you really look at the history of any plant, it will tell you a story about the people who have used it, who've discovered it, who sort of coaxed it out of, of wherever it was and got it to tell its own story. Or there's things like ferns that are totally indifferent that predate dinosaurs who have seen it all and are rather bored with <laughs> everything that's happening on the planet. So, you know, I, I assume that ferns have never, ferns have not been surprised for thousands of years. They, <laughs> yeah. they just haven't. They just, they've seen it all. They know what's going on, but humans coming along were something new. Yeah. They, we have we have not been here long enough for uh, for ferns to really have gotten accustomed to us yet. So we might be like the only real really new development in their world in the in the last little bit of geologic time. And now we're growing them in our gardens, uh, and ferns are going, "Hey, we can exploit this if they if people like us. They'll put us places where we can disperse our spores more freely." So. Uh, who knows? Yeah. I love the tell stories. I love that. I just actually talked to a, a moonwort expert, a uh, fanatic actually would be a better way to describe him. And uh, what you just said made me think of like them sitting in the ground going, you know, everything was going good for hundreds of millions of years. And now these weird apes showed up and everything's a mess. Everything's a mess. Everything. <laughs> uh, I've, I have collected spores for moonworts before. Nice. I have never have ever gotten them to grow. And I don't know what I would do with them if they if they would grow. Like, what do I need a moonwort for? I don't. Um, <laughs> Everyone needs one. He's just why? And it just, doesn't matter yeah. why. Just have one. The Gary Larson did one of his marvelous, marvelous far side cartoons where the cave bears are swatting at humans, and one of the cave bears is saying to the other, "Every summer, there's more and more of these things." <laughs> uh, I miss awesome. Gary Larson. It was very sad when he retired. Yeah. The but, uh, the greats have to go out in a bang, and I, I feel like Gary Larson did it well. He did, absolutely. And also, there's a select number of people who enjoy Gary Larson's cartoons because you have to understand science in order to understand why they're funny. And if you don't know about the natural world, there's a lot of people who won't find his work funny. You know, like yeah. praying mantises eating their kids is funny if you know that they're <laughs> cannibalistic. It's weird if you don't. <laughs> Just kind of morbid and sick. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, it's so true. Yeah. I like totally those little true. creative insights. But, uh, you know, kind of building off this idea of like the relationship between humans and plants and the stories they have to tell. I always get a kick out of seeing a plant that I know purely from cultivation or only in a gardener, only in a sad pot that sits on my mm -hmm. windowsill. And one of the really, th one of the 
aspects I got a kick out of your book is the interaction you had with some of these Mediterranean herbs, these things that only show up in little shaker bottles or as sad, light starved, yes. overwatered individuals in a pot. And now you, you know, the, what you outlined was seeing them in the cracks and crevices of yes. buildings and, and sidewalks. And just to be able to see them in their habitat had to have that been was, that was extraordinary it it was i hugged a rosemary at one point that was seven <laughs> or eight feet tall like i wanted to wrap christmas lights around it and just i stood there with this rosemary and as i have you know affectionately ruffled it this ridiculously rich fragrance of rosemary fills the air and i said to the rosemary do you know how expensive it is to buy like two or three twigs in the grocery store? And that rosemary was just getting things done out there in the Spanish sun. And I looked at where it was growing because I'm pretty sure that nobody planted it there. Yeah. I don't know whether it escaped from a garden or whether it naturally occurred there. I don't know, but I went, it's in very, very full sun. It's in quite good soil, but sharply drained. And it's in this rocky area where it is drenched in sun all day and protected a little bit from the wind. It is probably really, really been here a long time. And I don't know what the lifespan for rosemary is, which, <laughs> which, is, which made me wonder as I walked away from it, how old is that rosemary? Yeah. How long does it take a rosemary to grow eight and a half feet? That's I a have wild no question. I have no concept. I of have that. no idea what their lifespan is. So it occurred to me how many thousands of travelers have walked past this rosemary and saw it without seeing it. I don't know. I have no idea, but it was something I thought about. And I saw lavender, which I have to admit, I don't like the smell of lavender. Lots of okay. people love it. People really, really love the smell of lavender. It smells like my grandma's purse. <laughs> And I don't, I just, I don't like the smell of it. And I, that is not a commentary on anybody who does like it, but I smell, I smell grandma's purse. And so I've never liked that smell. And I saw lavender growing everywhere. Like, and I went, no wonder you're so unhappy in Canada. There's <laughs> lavender hates Canada, except for a few places in British Columbia and maybe Ontario. I don't know, but here in the prairies, our winters are too cold. Our growing season is too short. Our soil isn't what they want. It's just everything is terrible here if you are a lavender. And there, growing in cracks in the rock, when we were coming down one hillside, we were more or less stepping on it. I could smell lavender as we walked. And I didn't, I didn't actually hate it at that point because I, I expected, I'm like, you should probably smell Mediterranean herbs when you're in Mediterranean countries. Yeah. That, you know, this is, this is the actual correct context for this plant. So I thought, okay, well, this is, this is kind of neat, but you'd see window boxes full of basil that was so luxurious. Mm. There was one place where I actually walked up to somebody's house and touched the basil in the window box just to see if it was real, because I thought <laughs> there is no way that basil is capable of that kind of happiness wow. and it was so that was that was amazing but you you'd see plants like that sage grows in places there i saw a lady pulling summer savory out of the garden which had seeded everywhere um, you see dill growing all over the place fennel was everywhere hmm. fennel was not only everywhere in the ditches and along the roadsides there were snails 
all over the fennel and they were the snails with the curled sort of um, spiraled shells huh. and they were almost white. And early in the morning when we would walk and the sun would be coming up and you would get the, the first rays of sun on the, on the snail covered fennel, the snail shells looked like champagne bubbles. Wow. And it was really cool. And I pointed it out to this American woman that, that was walking beside me one morning. And I said, um, look at the light on these snail shells. And she said, is that what they are? Oh, gross. Oh. <laughs> I laughed because uh. I thought, oh, we're, we're having a very different experience here. <laughs> I was just going to say that you and I are seeing very different things very uh, different on the things. same backdrop. <laughs> Yeah, so, and I think that's actually neat. I think that we should see the world differently than yeah, the people I mean, around us sometimes. You'd hope, but uh, it, it can be frustrating. But yeah, it just, it's a reminder of that lens through which we experience the world, which, you know, again, you like you said, this is a memoir. This is being read. These are your journal notes. These are your experiences. But I can't help but think of the appeal to someone like me that, you know, wants to travel, wants to see these things, wants to experience some culture, but is just kind of bored by the average take on it. This was just such a wonderful lens to look through. And what's neat, too, is throughout this journey, it sounds like you had a good mixture of sort of these wild spaces contrasted with the human environment. But... A, a human environment done it and approached in such a different way. And my friend Dave actually really articulated this well is I've always kind of had a lack of interest in going to European cities because I'm like, what what nature's left there? And he goes, don't think about it that way. Think about it as people that have figured out over centuries how to integrate a little bit better with nature and bring nature. You've seen nature adjust a little bit better to human settlement in that context. And I definitely got that feel from your book of the sense that like, oh, the human environment doesn't always have to be sterile of life. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting observation because Canada has so much wilderness left, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. much. And I walked across Spain and realized Spain has so little wilderness left. At least in the northern parts where I was, I can't speak for the rest of the country. Right. But people have lived in Spain for so much longer than they've lived in Canada. Like, I mean, my nation is 150 years old. <laughs> There's only like, like as a nation, we've had people living here for thousands of years, but they didn't live the same way back then as we do now. We didn't have, you know, it, it's different. Whereas in Spain, you can kind of see in places where wilderness once was. And places where it was preserved a little bit or where it was cleared for agriculture, you can kind of see, if you look for it, what might have been. Mm. And it creates all of these question marks over the landscape because people have to have a space to grow crops. People have to have a space to live. What has been important to humanity over time is an interesting question because we will only preserve that which we care about. And there are places like the chestnut forests in Spain. People have been gathering chestnuts for thousands of years. So the chestnut forest had to be preserved. It was important to people. It was a source of food, but also probably wood for building and also probably shade on a hot day and maybe mushrooms and maybe they hunted wild pigs there. And it's interesting how in some cultures, forest and wilderness has been valued and in others it hasn't, or it has been sacrificed in some places mm. for something else that was deemed more important. So you, I find 
when I hike somewhere, I ask lots of questions. I worry about places. Is this place going to be protected? Am I hiking somewhere that's going to be a parking lot in 15 years? Mm. Or if I'm in a city, I ask myself, was this a grassland once? Was this a forest? What was here before people were here? What had to be sacrificed in order for humans to have the life that they live? And it's sometimes you come to good conclusions and sometimes you come to very dark and ugly conclusions. So that's an interesting thing to think about when you have to walk all day. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of those chestnut forests and in the context that you just put them in, you get a sense of, okay, once those decisions have been made and people are committed to it and we value one component of what is essentially was once an ecosystem, you get mm-hmm. to see sort of this experiment, I guess is one way to look at it. It's just what, what does valuing that one species due to the rest of the living biosphere. And I felt like, you know, you had to keep walking. Obviously, there was an objective, mm-hmm. but there were moments in this book where I was like, what would this look like if we just unleashed him on this forest for a couple of days just to see what came out of it? Not to say you have to like work on another book or anything about these chestnut forests, but, you know, those moments where you're like, what what would this look like through his eyes? And, and well, it, le- it leaves you a sense of wanting a little bit in a good way of like, oh, there's still so much left to explore in that context. That's that's nice of you to say that. That's um, I appreciate that. I have questions about some of those places. I discovered after I got home that I walked right through the habitat of the Spanish moon moth. Oh. And the Spanish moon moth is very similar to North America's Luna moth, huh. uh, which is a very large, magnificent green moth that I was a little bit obsessed with for a while as a child. <laughs> Rightly so. And I wish I had known when I was in Spain, when I was in moon moth habitat, because maybe I would have, maybe I would have treaded a little more carefully. Maybe I would have looked around a little more. Maybe I would have been a little more observant. I don't know, but it, And I mean, and I was there in the middle of October and walking during the day. It's not like I was just going to like encounter moon moths just randomly. I, you know, rare species are not going to just come to me in the middle of the afternoon. Oh, you're here. Hi. So I, but I think about where I was and thinking, well, when I walked there, was that, was that a place that moon moths could have been? And now it, now I think about it. Now I wonder about it all the time. And people say things to me like, uh, you know, do you ever wonder about the people that you met or where they are? And I say, well, not really, but I do think about Spanish moon moths. <laughs> and they say, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Uh, Lennon, you're amazing. Because <laughs> I've had so many of those. Did you take, do you meet any people on this vacation? Like, no, I was too busy looking at the plants. It's too busy looking at plants. That is, that is totally like, I'm glad there are people like you that exist because I've been asked that. My mom has said things to me like, well, did you, did you meet anybody? Did you take any photos? Did you, and I, well, mom, I found this plant and I saw this, and there was this <laughs> butterfly and then I saw two birds. Yeah. But there are people there, right? Yeah. Like you did, did you at least make some friends? Yeah. With butterflies. So. <laughs> hey, it's again, I, I go to bed usually pretty happy with those experiences. So yeah, I went to bed in Spain thinking about large coffees and then not getting them the next day, which I also wrote about. Uh, which probably will make me sound like the entitled Westerner. No, 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 no. I think I even developed like a sympathy headache for you in those contexts. (laughs) Cause 
the the idea of having to do what you set out to do and not have one of the most important plants for my yes. day-to-day operations, which really comes down to coffee, uh, to be yes. denied that and the volumes that us Westerners truly desire and need to function. Yes. <sighs> Good on you. I I love coffee and I wanted a large coffee every day. And, and Europeans do not do large coffee. They serve you get your coffee in like a shot glass <laughs> and, and that's it. And so, and it was the Spanish coffee was so beautiful. You probably found that in Portugal as yeah. well. It's amazing. The, it's amazing, but I wanted buckets of it. And that is, that is not how it's done there. Also, I, just I found fun. they wanted to offer it to me and I'm very sensitive with caffeine. It was always like, Hey, it's eight, nine o'clock at night. Would you like some espresso? And you're like, I, I don't want to be up for 48 hours. No. Yeah. The, the trouble with with you know with espresso in European countries is that three or four days later you're tired again. So <laughs> that's that's a problem. You know? Yeah. So uh, there, um, if you ever do a podcast about the coffee family, maybe you have, but that is such an interesting family of plants, and there's so many weird things in there that I think are cool. That that would be. I would love to listen to that. that well, I'll have so to send you the link. I did a great crossover with the errands from this podcast will kill you where you get to hear all about the oh. cultural and the medical side of caffeine. I would be so on board with that. I should, um, I've been wanting to download podcasts for my, for my road trips in the next little while. And I haven't, I haven't done it because where I've been living, I have not had internet access for several months. Oh, bummer. So well, I can get on, I can get on the internet at work, but I'm not downloading personal stuff while I'm there. Uh oh. Well, good on you. Uh, your bosses will be happy to hear that. But uh, they yeah, will be to hear that, I yes. can't I can't say good enough things about this podcast. Will kill you. They're two amazingly brilliant people that are producing some great content. But in the context of the travels and and thinking about you know, it's one thing to be writing a journal. It's mm-hmm. another thing to make an observation in that journal, but then it's an entirely different thing to have to come home and turn this into a manuscript for a book. So in thinking about that, there has to have been some plants that you saw along the way that got passing mention or maybe didn't get mentioned at all, but still stuck with you, but didn't quite make it into the the writing portion of this. Uh, you know, I mean, that's the great thing about plants is no matter where you are, they're kind of everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. So what are what what were some of the things that like didn't quite make it into this, but still kind of stuck out to you as you're trudging along all of those kilometers? That is a really really good question. There was quite a number of plants whose names I never I never learned and wished that I would have. Yeah, there was there was something that grew in the ditches that looked um, sort of like a cucumber crossed with a watermelon, but it was very tiny, hmm. and it was clearly something in that family. And I have absolutely no idea what it was. And it was even a little bit prickly. Hmm. And I tried to, I tried to figure out what it was. I still have not figured out what it was. Uh, I wrote a whole section about the Leland cypresses and Cyprus has been used so much in Europe. And I don't see that here at home. Cyprus generally does not like Canada's climate, except in the most mild parts of our country. And so the fact that Cyprus was used to line cemeteries and roadways and cypress was planted along a lot of old roman roads essentially for shade but also to mark boundaries and Hmm. property lines and and things of that nature cypress was one of the sacred trees of hades the lord of the dead and i wondered if cypress was planted where it was to mark cemeteries because not everybody survived the camino back in the day Hmm. there was lots of places where pilgrims were buried 
because they didn't make the journey because, you know, if we get an infection, we have antibiotics and we have topical creams we can use for that. An infection could be death in the 1300s, you know? So if you fell on the mountain and scraped up your legs and you got bacteria in there, like you could die and people did die. Um, there's a town along the way that, that exists because it was where the hospital was for, for pilgrims who didn't make it. Yeah. So whenever I saw cypresses, I thought about death and I didn't think about it in, in a negative way. Right. Um, we don't really know how to deal with death in the Western world. We don't talk about it. We don't address it. When somebody dies, we don't even say that they died. We say they passed away. Yeah. We, we really are not good in Western culture about addressing death. And be, when you walk all day, you become very, very aware of your feet and of your body and what you're carrying. And you think about the fact that like, you have to make friends with your own mortality in a sense, because it's, it's a physical thing to do. And your body being physical is going to wear out someday and you will die. And that is, that's not something that should be frightening or morbid or creepy. It is an inevitability. And I think that that's something that we really need to be better at discussing. And every time I saw cypress trees, I thought about the fact that someday I will die. <laughs> and if it is tomorrow, what have I have, what have I accomplished? What have I done? What have I what what have I done of significance? And those are big, heavy questions that lots of people don't like to think about. But I sort of, and I hope this doesn't sound more, but I sort of like to think about yeah, that. Because yeah. in the garden, death translates into life. Compost is the remains of dead things. Everything's recycled. Every tree that falls is reclaimed by the earth and becomes nutrition for something else. And nothing is wasted in nature. And when we come from nature. When we die, we go back to nature. I think that is really very beautiful, but it's generally not perceived that way. There was one cemetery that we passed that was entirely surrounded by cypress trees. Hmm. And there was a sign on the gate. And I seem to recall that I wrote about this, but I don't think it actually made it into the book. I don't think it survived the editing process. The sign was written in Spanish, French, and English. And it was a message from the dead to the living. And it said, what you are, I once was. <laughs> what I am, you soon will be. Wow. Yeah. Whew. And it was meant to be a comfort to the pilgrims who passed that whether you are male or female or whatever the color of your skin, whatever your religion, whatever your gender, whoever you are, we are all equal. We all end up in the same location. So it was, it was meant for people to recognize we are all from one place, we all go back to one place, and that we should take solace in that. And I still think about that. I still think about the the implications of that, because it is true. We've all lost somebody suddenly. We've all, you know, we've all had to say goodbye to somebody before we were ready to do so. And that's something that we, you know, people will grieve a death for many, many years, myself included. And I think part of it is the fact that we are so unprepared for it. So many ancient cultures had ceremonies to deal with it. They had people for closure that, you know, we helped spirits cross over. We helped people understand that, you know, deceased family members were at rest, were at peace, that they had transcended, that there was, in a sense, sort of ancient support groups for, <laughs> you know, we went to where, where do people go? What happens to them? 
and because we live in a in a world where you know we're not as we're not as faith-filled as a society as we once were people have questions and people don't know things and people are looking for answers and we don't we still don't like to talk about death and I think that's interesting. And so every, like everywhere along the trail, you see cypress trees. And every time I saw cypress trees, I went death. And I, and I thought about it in, in the sense that you can't have life without it. Yeah. So, you know, which, which is interesting. And there's, I also saw vultures quite frequently in, in Spain and thought that was really, really cool. Um, <laughs> you know, that there's, it, it can be a little bit ominous when there's, when you're on a, 600 kilometer trek and there's vultures circling overhead and you're limping you're like i'm the slow one today yeah and the vultures are saying to each other dinner will be ready in 20 minutes Uh, (laughs) wait it out (laughs) yeah it's it was it was interesting that was that was one thing that that i didn't really write about but that i did think about a lot um there was also a lot of um a lot of the same flowers over and over again in the towns and the cities Hmm. And this, this is, you might laugh at this, but I still wonder about this. I didn't pass any greenhouses or garden centers. I don't huh. recall passing a single one. And I remember thinking, where are people getting their flowers from? Yeah. Where do people go in Spain to get flowers? Because if there had been, a, if I had seen a single garden center anywhere along the way, I would have gone in. And I didn't, <laughs> and I didn't see one. Wow. So I went, you know, marigolds, geraniums, petunias, four o'clocks. Lots of different different plants that that are you know common in North American gardens as well. Um, I saw red carnations in many gardens, which is hmm. you know the red carnation is Spain's national flower. I didn't see anywhere where anybody was selling potted carnations. I and I so I have no idea where people where people buy their plants there or where they get. Does everybody just save seed? Does everybody just take cuttings? I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how plants are marketed and distributed in Europe as compared to North America. I mean, I know there's plenty of garden centers in Holland and the UK and Germany, but France and Spain and Italy and Portugal, I don't know. I have no Mm. idea. I'm sure they must exist. There must be somewhere where they're (laughs) right. So who knows? But I think there's something to be said too about, you know, gardening is its own culture and everywhere is doing it a little bit different, if not drastically different mm-hmm. from what you listening to this are used to, no matter where you live, there are differences. And that's kind of the beautiful and, and sometimes frustrating thing about it. But I think of like what older family members, you can get them going on plants, you know, especially some of my mm-hmm. non-American family members, you can get them talking about it, even though they don't know anything about Bonnie, they don't care about, you know, it's, it's a, there's almost this connection there that's deeper than sort of like what I like about plants or what my friends and I talk about plants. It's just the thing we've always done. We share it. We like the beauty. And it's mm-hmm. just like more part of the day-to-day operation. I'm I'm probably projecting, but I get a sense that no, some people, it's right. just so much more ingrained in like day-to-day activities than it is in most Western places, at least here in North America. Yeah. I think that there's probably something to that. Absolutely. Yeah, because I, you know, think about the hand-me-down sort of pride that some people have in cuttings or clones that they've kept going for generations. Mm-hmm. Again, not to say we don't experience that here. I've got pothos that are probably genetically uh, older than anyone in my family, but... Probably, yeah. <laughs> I know of a lady who was a 100-year-old Christmas cactus. Dang. Like, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. And so on this trip, I mean, one of the things that you are great about is is the honesty of it. But there was so much of this book that even though I would 
could almost feel the pain in your feet and your shins and, and just this trek. It was really relaxing too, because there's no, you know, you're not, you were writing towards an end goal in that you were writing as you were walking, but there's mm-hmm. no like act two, act three, we're hitting a climax of this story sort of here. I didn't, I didn't feel like there was an agenda other than observation and taking it in, whether that was a good day or a bad day. And the fact that oh. you can talk about plants with either of those moods, painting the picture, it, it just like, no matter what your struggles were or what your enjoyment was that day, I, I was very relaxed reading this book. And I might've even emailed good. you to tell you, like, I enjoyed reading this to the point where like it lulled me to sleep in a good way some nights. That's really nice. That's really nice of you to say. And I'm glad to hear that. Um, Cause I would like a travel memoir to be relaxing. I would like it to be, easy and comfortable and that you can just sort of pick it up and slip into it as it were, (laughs) you know, um, I've read lots of travel memoirs and lots of travel books and some of them have been really excellent and some of them have not. And sometimes that's not about the writer. Sometimes it's just about what's being written about and how that goes. So if you enjoyed, if you found it relaxing to read about me tramping across Spain and making friends with trees, I love that. What a great compliment. Thank you. Um, I'm just glad it translated as you intended. Me too. Um, because sometimes it, it doesn't. Um, sometimes, you know, when you have just words on a page, it can be interpreted differently. Like if you say in print, uh, what do you mean by that? You could be asking a genuine, honest question. Well, what do you mean by that? Or it could be, what do you mean by that? You know, there's no, there's no inflection. There's no tone in words on a page. So it's really hard sometimes to convey a sense of how you really were because you can come across sounding angry or abrupt or short tempered when you're really just describing it in a straightforward, this is how it was kind of a way. I don't recall ever being really angry on the Camino, except for the one day when we had to walk 30 kilometers, which is <laughs> not a reasonable distance to go in a single day. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, I should really find out what that is in miles because that would probably make more sense to your audience, but yeah, they'll do. It's, it's too far. It's just way too far. It, and so I was really, really grumpy towards the end of that day. And I was, it was that, directionless anger that is not really focused on any one thing just i'm mad now you know (laughs) yeah Yeah. we get there sometimes and i think because so much has been written about the camino i read lots about the camino before i went and a lot of them not all of them certainly but a lot of them write about it in this almost mythical sense that Mm. like everything is glorious and beautiful and life changing and transcendent and covered in light and angels danced and there was church bells and everyone went home stronger and better and happier. And, you know, I don't write that way because I don't live that way. I have, I tried to be very, very honest in this book and I tried to write in a way that didn't glorify the experience in the sense that, I like I have rolled my eyes reading some Camino books going, are you kidding me? Like, like really? And others where it's, you know, where people have written about it in a very straightforward matter of fact way. And so one of the things that my editor and I did was um, he said, we have to find your authentic voice and we want you to be straightforward and honest about this, but we also want your audience to connect with you. So how do you write in such a way that you are, 
conveying the experience in a truthful, non-exaggerated way with no frills and with there's no fancy writing in this book. There's there's nothing that I have put golden wings on, so to speak. I just write it as it really was and how I really did it. And hopefully people connect with that. You certainly succeeded in my opinion. And I, I'm someone that read a lot of adventure stuff. I got really roped in by sort of the romantic dirtbag diary sort of travel. I live in mm-hmm. my van kind of thing. But then you meet enough of those people and you get a little bit older and you realize so much of it is lip service to what is mm-hmm. oftentimes very miserable periods in between truly mm-hmm. wonderful experiences, not downplaying any of it, but you get a sense of sort of the fiction being applied to what truly happened. Mm-hmm. You don't get that with this book. You get an honest take and I can't hope again, thank you for the fact that you're doing it through the eyes of a gardener because it's just the digestion aspect for me is like, ah, yes, how I see the world. But you add so much of the human experience into this that it also reminds me not to be so fixated on just, no, 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 no. Let's focus in on the plants. But yeah, but these are people writing these words. These are people experiencing them. Let's honor that to an extent that Hmm. it doesn't take over the story. But it also reminds you to kind of look up a little bit too when you're botanizing. I, uh, when, whenever I have read travel memoirs and they they all mention occasionally in passing, you know, a forest or a garden. I want to know what was growing in that garden. What did you see there? What was blooming there? <laughs> what was what was on the? So I tried to write a travel book with the information that I would want in a travel book. You know, there's a cathedral here. There's a church here. There's a school here. You know, that's how a lot of travel books seem to go. Like, you know, we saw this restaurant or we saw this historic place. And I'm going, yeah, that's great. And I appreciate that. But also what was growing there. And very often that element was missing. So I always said, if I ever write a travel book, I'm just going to write about stuff that is growing in those places. And so there's very little about churches and cathedrals and schools and mine and lots about figs and, you know, that (laughs) and grapes because that's what what interests me. Totally. And what it does is it puts a backdrop to these experiences because, like you said, a lot of people have written about the Camino. A lot of people have experienced it. I mean, thousands upon thousands of people have walked it. This isn't an unknown place, even if Mm -hmm. I myself am so sheltered, I didn't know about it. Uh, Well, I didn't either, and I went and did it. So, But you have (laughs) successfully put a backdrop, a biological backdrop to this. But what is also cool is just as we talked about with the chestnut forests and the Mediterranean herbs is you're putting context to a lot of plants that are going to be very, very familiar to people just because of globalization, the trade. I mean, some of these species are well known. It's just, mm. you know, they're disembodied. They have no context. And and books like this give them a bit more context, even if it is nice. a very human context. The uh, A friend of mine who lives in British Columbia read it and texted me and said, um, I didn't know that we both loved wisteria. <laughs> and I said, how has that, we've been friends for 13 years. How has that never come up in conversation? And so that was something that, you know, that I also liked was the fact that my book about connections with plants led to me and a very human friend instead of a tree friend <laughs> actually having a moment where it was like, we just discovered something about each other that we didn't previously <laughs> realize and i said i had no idea that you that you also obsessively love wisteria and she immediately sent me photos of 
the wisterias in her neighborhood that she had made friends with. And I said, why have we never, we have never had this connection with each other before. And so I like that my book about plants refired one of my, one of my human connections. And I thought <laughs> that actually worked out really well. I didn't plan that, but that's great. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you never know. And that's, that's a whole new subject you guys can bond over now. I mean, that's, that's very special. It is. So, cause I don't want to be friends with anybody who doesn't love wisterias. Yeah, but I mean, like, come on. <laughs> really? Like that's, it just takes one time seeing them in bloom to truly just go, all right, no matter what you do, I have to respect this plant. The very first time I ever saw wisterias in bloom, I was 19 and it was in the South Island of New Zealand. It was the furthest from home I had ever been. I had never traveled overseas by myself before. And I was tired and I was still dealing with time change and everything else. And I walked into this park and there was a stone bridge covered in flowering wisteria, just dripping with these deep purple (laughs) flowers. And I went, oh yeah, that's why I crossed an ocean. I get it now. Yeah. Now it's, now it's become very clear to me. Yeah. So it's those arrival moments, both literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. I think plants are arrival moments because when you are far away from home and you feel alone and you feel homesick and you encounter plants that you know, you're not quite so alone anymore. Yeah. And I think the goal of most humans is to just not feel alone. If you boil everything down, we're really, everything we do is just us trying not to feel alone. Trying to establish connections with other humans is really just about us trying not to feel alone in the universe. So that's, I think, every moment that you have with a plant that connects you to your ancestors, to the earth, to the people around you, to the culture around you. I think all of those things with plants are really about you know, in some ways, connections with ourselves. So if you go back far enough on the evolutionary tree, we have a common ancestor somewhere. <laughs> we, you, If you go back far enough, you know, it's been a long time, but somewhere on that evolutionary tree, things diverged and they went in different directions, but, but somewhere humans and plants have, a, have somebody, something in common. I mean, the same four amino acids build us as they do that. Yeah. It's just how those blueprints read out. And that's an amazing thing. And yeah, I think whether someone has walked the same path as you or will never walk this path in their lifetime, someone they're all going to get something out of this book. And it's made all the better by being rooted <laughs> in plants. Thank you. I'm so <laughs> glad that you enjoyed it. That's great. Yeah, and it's uh, it's something, too, that if you write a memoir and you put it out in the world, it's there forever, mm-hmm. which can be terrifying mm-hmm. as a writer. That, because, I mean, I look at things that I wrote when I was in my 20s, and I'm like, oh, no, I hope this never <laughs> sees the light of day and that nobody ever ever is aware of my terrible, terrible poetry and like my horrible, horrible journals. Like because we change as we get older and we become different people and we evolve into hopefully better people. I would like to think that, you know, that that I have not peaked yet, that I have not written my best work yet. So I'd like to think that there's something, something better, something different brewing that, that someday will be unleashed upon an unwitting world. But um, I, I think that books are interesting in the sense that, they capture a moment in time. They capture a snapshot of who you were then. 
and who you become is really up to you. But I think it's important to look back sometimes. And maybe when I'm in my 50s or 60s, I'll read my, my Camino book and go, oh, wow, you didn't know anything. <laughs> you, you'd, you didn't know. You had no idea where you were going or what you were doing with your life. And now you do. Um, I hope I'll have figured things out by then. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. But it is a moment in time. And it's interesting to leave, leave records of that, <laughs> you know, that we read, we read the words of people from centuries ago and their words are often still relevant. But I think sometimes, you know, we look at Shakespeare or we look at, uh, you know, any, any of the great writers from the past, who, who were they after the book yeah. is always a question I want to ask. Hmm. Who did they, who did they grow into after, after that? Right. And you mean you've had two amazing growing experiences because not only did you experience this journey, which is a, a testament in and of itself, but the, the writing about it, turning it into something, uh, you've got a couple things to look back on. And I'm sure you've evolved between when you did it and when it was finally in print and you're going to continue to evolve as you mentioned. I hope so. I hope Linden 2.5 will be better than the current version. It'll be smarter, faster, stronger, more compatible. Still downloading updates. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so it. often there's just a little circle that says, you know, scanning, yeah, yeah. scanning, no I, results found. I feel like the beach ball of death these days, but you know, <laughs> we all have our ups and downs. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Lyndon, once again, The Way of the Gardener, Lost in the Weeds along the Camino de Santiago. It is a fantastic read. It's something that, uh, you know, I surprised myself in reading and I enjoyed every moment of it. I can't recommend it enough to listeners. Thank you so much for the journey you went on. Thank you for painting the picture that you did. And I wish you all the best with it. If people want to find out more about you, pick up a copy of the book or anything else, where do they go looking? Um, that is a good question. I have sort of stopped writing my blog. Um, it which is a long story. There's, I keep a pretty low profile online, but I'll uh, I'll send you some links for some classes that I'll be doing online if anybody wants to join. Oh, fantastic! That is yeah, awesome. I'm going I'm to be doing some uh, some online virtual classes for the University of Saskatchewan. So if you live in a short season growing area, or even if you don't, you might want to join us this winter to learn about uh, milkweeds. I'm going to do one on pet stamens. I'm going to do a class on um, thistles i'm gonna do wow i've got i've got some i've got some good stuff coming down the pipe so when when those are posted i'll send you the link and you can um and people can find me that way yeah please do um and, and of course i will save everyone the trouble and i'll just add links so they don't have to remember this and write it down uh but oh you're you're kind you're a good person matt <laughs> oh thanks you do so much work for your listeners too <laughs> we're we are lucky to have you <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. I'll remember that on the bad days. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lyndon, it is an, always an absolute pleasure. I love everything you're doing and uh, keep being the wonderful person that you are. I will say the same thing to you. Thank you so much for the invite to be here. I'm, I'm so flattered and so honored to be able to be part of your success. Of course. Um, so thank you very, yeah. very much. Well, we'll get you back on to Wax Poetic about specific species again, because that's always that fun. That time too. is coming. There's lots <laughs> we can talk about. Excellent. All right. Well, hang in there and stay healthy in the meantime and enjoy the new wonderful position. They are blessed to have you. Thank you. Cheers. All right. And that is it for this week. It is always a joy to sit down and talk with Lyndon. And I'm so happy whenever I could share those conversations with you. I thank Lyndon for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us, and I can't recommend his book enough. Once again, it's called The Way of the Gardener, Lost in the Weeds Along the Camino de Santiago. 
Of course, you can find all of the links, including ones to purchase this book, in the show notes for this episode. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast to find out more. Of course, you can also support the show through Patreon or any of the merch we have for sale, which includes my book, as well as a lot of customizable apparel. All those can be found in the show notes as well. Before I let you go, I do have two shout outs to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Ben and Lanny. Both of them signed up at the producer credit level over at patreon.com slash plants. And together with everyone else that supports this show each and every month, they are helping keep Indefensive Plants up and running. And I could not be doing this without people like them. So once again, thank you to Ben and Lanny for their support. But that is it for me this week. I hope you are all hanging in there, staying healthy, and being good to each other. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.